Those of you listening on the internet, I emailed everybody a chart, so if you want to check your email and print that off, uh, you may want to do that. It might help you follow along. And I hope if you didn't get one, I tried to print about 40 of them off, so hopefully everybody everybody got a chart uh, to look at, and I trust and hope that it'll it'll help us uh, in what I want to do here this morning. So we're in the Gospel of John, uh, as you probably can see, and we'll be looking at um, uh, this word believe and the context of it in John's gospel and, and what it means for you and I uh, to believe uh, into Christ. Now you'll notice it says believing into Christ. Um, and when you look at John's gospel, um, it, well, and, the, and in the gospels period, um, Mark and, and, or Matthew and Mark both uh, use the same expression, not in, but into. Now, on your chart, does anybody remember what the circle is supposed to be about? Have you looked at your preposition chart lately? And you remember the, the little word en, which is also our little word, in, in. And uh, we'll be looking at that more in depth, Lord willing, next week, if we get done with this week. So <laughs> there's a, a method to this madness of where we're going, and then then there's ultimately another chart, as it were, after that. And so uh, I think that you'll find it meaningful, and I, I trust helpful as well. Um, we, we, you know, put, to put all this in context and looking back at the history of Israel, you know, you have to go all the way back. Uh, to the very beginning to make any sense out of what we're going to be looking at here. Back in Genesis. Genesis records the, uh, the creating of the heavens, and that's important, the heavens and the earth, uh, as being the dwelling place of man. And uh, it was designed for man on purpose by God so that he might have fellowship with us. This is our dwelling place. This is where we live. It's our, uh, if you look at the word dwelling or our tabernacling place, it's where we, we are tabernacled. Uh, the heavens and the earth at that time were one domain as we've talked about before. There was just one uh, aspect of creation. Heaven and earth were together, just like chapter 1 and verse 1 of Genesis says. In, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then he created man, and he made us to be fit for this particular place, and he did so with a purpose. It's God's desire that, uh, that he fellowship with us, and he wants us. This whole idea of, you know, this, I, I guess you'd call it this false sense of uh, humility, like, well, God could never want me, or God doesn't really have any interest in me. Does he really care? Well, that the fact that you are here shows that he cares, and he has an interest in you, and he wants to fellowship with you. It's his desire. It's why he made us. And once you grasp that idea, then hopefully that will motivate you to want to get to know him even more and grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this, um, 
ultimately then rejecting of God's word by, by Adam and Eve, um, resulting in them, of course, being expelled from the garden. And so this, this initial heavenly meeting place uh, was marred, it was ruined. And they were expelled from that garden. So this heavenly aspect was gone, it was removed. Now man is relegated to just the earth. It's our desire and want to have that heavenly aspect back, to have it restored. Um, in, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, we see another thing that happened there that I think we're familiar with. The, the sons of God, it says, left heaven. They came down to earth. There they cohabited with the daughters of men. And as a result, they uh, created giants upon the earth. They were born to them. And they populated the earth. And it ultimately became uh, a downfall to Israel. You remember when they went up to the land of Canaan and the 12 spies, it says they saw the giants there and they, they fell into great fear. And they made the rest of the people's hearts to melt. Uh, so that they were afraid to go up in obedience to God and, and take the land of Canaan. Now, <clears throat> oh, that becomes real important as well because, um, well, to fill in some more gaps, you know, uh, man became corrupt. The whole earth became corrupt. God determined to destroy man from off the face of the earth. Thankfully for us, one man, found grace in the eyes of the Lord and he spared him and that was Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives now there's a, of course a lot more to the story than being able to uh, go into that and uh, with any kind of depth we're just saying that uh, man's corruption caused God to take action in ultimately restoring heaven and earth together now the next thing that took place, the Tower of Babel incident, and we know then also the fact that man rebelled against the Lord and uh, not dividing themselves or separating themselves. They were all of one language. And they this one, one aspect, those that lived in Babylon decided they wanted to build a tower. And, and you really need to think that through because the tower, an and ancient, in the ancient Near East, in that culture, the tower was meant to reach up back to God, to the heavens. That was the whole idea. They wanted to restore that, but it was done on man's own effort. Um, on a one Wednesday night, it's been several, three or four months ago, I guess now, uh, Mark was teaching and he brought out the idea that they made bricks with their hands, emphasizing the fact of man's effort to restore a relationship with God that had been ruined. So, the whole earth had been corrupt again. They failed to separate themselves and you remember that from Genesis 
1 all the way through Genesis chapter 11 that the earth was viewed as one corporate thing. It wasn't divided up. God dealt with man, in other words, as one corporate entity. Beginning with chapter 12, when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldees and made a promise to him concerning a land, it's important for us to understand that God took this little speck of land over there in the Middle East and said, this is where I want you to go. This is where I'm going to start the restoration process. All the earth belonged to the Gentile nations, as it were. Of course, there wasn't Israel and Gentiles at that point in time. Uh, but just so you and I get the idea that they were, they were all of one. And now there's a separation. Now God calls out a distinct people, Israel, and he promises them a land. And this is like, you know, it's like you're going out and driving a stake in and staking your claim to this. As a matter of fact, it tells us that Abraham went along staking his claim. Uh, he tented along. Everywhere, you remember when he went down to the land of Canaan, everywhere he went, he pitched his tent. And the idea there was is he was staking his claim based on God's promise that he was going to get that land and his descendants would occupy it. And of course, the ultimate point of all of that then was that they would spread throughout the earth and reclaim the earth. And we, we all know the outcome of that. They failed, uh, they rejected God. As a matter of fact, not only did they reject Yahweh uh, and his desires, but <clears throat> they began to follow in to the idolatry of the nations around them. And they gave themselves over so fully to idolatry that God sent them off into exile. And of course, he told them that's exactly what would happen. And they did. So they went off to Babylon and to Assyria. And there they remained because of God's judgment upon them. And their failure to remain loyal and faithful to Yahweh. So, having said all of that, it was, well, maybe I should say this too. At the end of the period of exile, you know, God had departed from the nation of Israel. He allowed them to come back to the land, but God didn't come with them. In other words, the theocracy that God had established was with Israel did not go back to the land of Israel with them. That came to an end. With all of that said, now we come to the Gospels and we come to God sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to begin again this restoring process. And it was, it was under this Situation. If you look at John 1 and verse, uh, verse 14, it says there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word dwelt there is the idea of tabernacle with us. Just like he did back there in chapter, uh, Genesis 
12, 13, 14, 15. I think it's in 13 where it says uh, that, that uh, Abraham, Abram, tabernacle, moved his tent along as he was staking his claim to the land. Now, when God sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to the nation of Israel, of course, the expectation was is that they would believe that he was the Messiah. They would, they would know that he was the son of God. And, you know, believing that was the most important thing a Jewish person could do because he was sent to, initially, to the nation of Israel. And the idea then was there would be repentance on their part. They would reestablish their relationship with Yahweh through Yahweh's son, the Lord Jesus. And God would then continue to proceed to honor his word in restoring the earth and restoring man's relationship with God. Now, I said all that to say then, when we come to John's gospel, um, if, if you turn to chapter 20 and there's a couple of important verses there that we start with we go to the end of the gospel in order to let us know what where John is headed and what is to be accomplished with this book that he wrote this gospel account and of course we all I think are familiar with the idea that John's gospel is structured differently than the synoptic gospels and in verses 30 and 31, it says, Jesus did many other signs. And of course, there are signs done that, that uh, John records out of, I think it was around 36 in the Gospels, signs that Jesus did. John chose eight of them in his Gospel account to show us what he was doing with the nation of Israel in making himself known to them, manifesting himself as the Son of God. And so the point of all that was then is, you know, Jesus, remember he told him, he says, if you don't believe me, believe the works that I do. In other words, believe these miracles. Because if you believe the miracle, even though you don't believe my words, at least then you'll know that I came from God, that I came from the Father. And the Father is in me. But they wouldn't even do that. And so he says, there are many other signs in the presence of the disciples. All of these miracles, which are not written in this book, but these eight are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So you see the ultimate purpose was in believing in the Lord Jesus. It was so that you might have life in his name. Now, you'll notice on the chart, you know, it says they're believing into Christ. And I asked about the, the circle here. If you remember our prepositions, and the word in, which I didn't put it on here because we're going to deal with that later, but they kind of overlap so that you know that when you believe into Jesus, you are placed 
in Christ, in this sphere or realm of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I don't really want to bring that up because I don't want to get too far ahead, but when you come to the epistles, the expression is not into Christ, it's always in Christ. And then there's another expression that comes after that, which I'm not going to tell you right now, that has to do with the future restoration of the earth to man in the millennial kingdom. So, back to chapter 1 now. We saw what the purpose of the book of, of uh, this gospel was about, John chapter 1. Now, in verse 4, it tells us there that Jesus is the light. In him was the light. And believing into his name. Now, the reason I say that is because in every single incident in John's gospel, when he talks about believing, it's the word into every time even though our translators use the word in, or sometimes that they believe on Christ. But the word is ites, meaning into, or towards, or as you see on your chart, with respect to, believing with respect to Christ. That expression only occurs in the other gospels, um, one time really um, it's in Mark and it's in Matthew but it's the same account and it's interesting to me that you don't find it in the synoptic gospels at all but here in John's gospel there's something like 39 expressions of this word into and how we are to believe into him so having said all that then uh, this believing into Christ then resulted in being born of God. And you see that there in, in, uh, in, in verse 14, or excuse me, uh, 13. In verse 12, he says, To all who did receive him, who believed into his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So John establishes the fact from the very beginning, the priority is for each one of us to be born of God. Now, how does all that occur? One simple thing, belief. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He doesn't tell us anything else. The promise is, if we do, then we will gain life. And we'll see a little later on what that life is, what it's all about. So this first sign then that Jesus did was in Cana of Galilee. Now, I'm saying all that to say, I hope you remember up here in your head, the geography. You know, we're, we're up north in Galilee. And there, this miracle, this sign was performed regarding 
away. And if we would examine the chronology here, you would find that this wedding was taking place on the seventh day. And so it was a picture of what was to occur on the seventh day, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where it tells us that God created the earth and man, and then he rested on the seventh day. There was nothing more to be done. I mean, God had satisfied what he intended to do in order to have fellowship with man. And that's why he rested on the seventh day. Because that whole picture was ruined and marred by unbelief and rebellion on the part of Adam and Eve, now there needs to be a restoration of that time of rest. And so God has been moving throughout history all the way through to the millennial age that the Bible calls rest and that we are to enter into that rest. Now, in chapter 2, verse 11, it says there this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And what happened? His disciples believed into him. Now this was not the thing that happened to the, the, the nation of Israel. Nationally, they rejected him. They turned away from him, but the disciples, when they saw those signs, this and this really the first sign here at Cana, at the wedding, turning the water into wine, they understood exactly what that meant. And when they saw it, they knew that he was God's promised Messiah. And it says they believed into Jesus. So then Jesus begins his public ministry, beginning in, in verse 13. Now chapter two, verse, verse 13. And it's interesting here to follow the geography of where Jesus went. Number one, it says in verse, uh, I think it's verse 13 anyway, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. Where was the first place that Jesus went when he began to reveal himself to Israel and manifest himself to them? Probably to the most obvious place that you and I could have imagined or thought of. He went to the temple. And because the temple had been corrupted by Israel, he came in and cleansed the temple. Why are you making my father's house a den of thieves? He threw out the tables of the money changers and so on. In, in, a, in an act of cleansing. Well, it says then, and we don't have time to read the whole thing there, but if you go all the way down to verse uh, 22, it says, therefore, uh, when, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Then, <clears throat> beginning in verse 23, it tells us there, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, all right, he's not in the temple now, but he's still in the capital city. 
and he's manifesting himself to the people of Israel just no longer in the temple and it says there many believed into his name when they saw the signs that he was doing so again he's performing signs revealing himself as the promised Messiah and many it says believe but remember the rulers didn't the rulers of the nation rejected him and so nationally there was a rejection and then it goes on to tell us um, that in this same context when he was in the capital city this man Nicodemus came along and he he uh, comes to Jesus uh, with a question about the kingdom doesn't say it exactly there but I think that's exactly what was on his mind it was what was on every Jew's mind when it came to the Messiah and Jesus told him that there's no entering into the kingdom unless you're you are born from above that is you are birthed out from God and there's no other way and so <clears throat> He ministers in Judea in um, chapter 3 go down to verse 22 and you'll notice it says there after this Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside so he went from the temple to ministering in the capital city and then out into the country And that was a, his primary focus in going up to Jerusalem was to cover the whole land of Judea to reveal himself to them that they might believe in him and of course we know that many of the people did but the religious leaders rose up in animosity towards the Lord and rejected him then if you'll look at chapter 4 and verse 4 and you'll see it says there and he had to pass through Samaria now Jesus was returning from Judea he was going back to Galilee and in order to do that he had to pass through Samaria well while he's on the way we know the story he meets uh, the woman at the well and <clears throat> he asked her about getting a drink and um, he says if you knew who it is that's asking you he would have given you living water water with life in it well she wanted that water so they have a little conversation she realizes I think first probably she realized exactly who he was she goes into town and she starts telling about her experience and said could this be the Messiah well the men of the town come out to meet with Jesus and if you look at verse 39 chapter 4 verse 39 
And he tells us there, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. So you see that even here, passing through non-Israeli country, he's still preaching the gospel, even to the Samaritans. And many of them, it says, believed in him because of they saw the signs that he did, because of the woman's testimony. Now, in verse 43, chapter 4, verse 43, it tells us there, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. In other words, passing on through Samaria. He had waited there two days. Now he's on his way uh, back to Galilee, where Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, where they too had gone to the feast. They saw the signs that he did, and they welcomed him rather than rejecting him. Now, following upon that, you'll see in, in verse uh, 40, can't read that, 46, he came back to Cana. He made full circle. He came back to the very place where he had begun with his first sign. And uh, who does he meet up with there? But a nobleman or a royal official of some sort telling Jesus, my son's sick, he's dying. Uh, if you just speak the word, Lord, he'll be made well, he'll be okay. And Jesus, true to his fashion, said, all you do is look for signs. You won't believe me unless I do a sign for you. Perform some miraculous thing. So he does it, and he heals the nobleman's son. As a matter of fact, he told him, he says, go your way, your son will live. And you'll look at verse 50. It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And when he got back, his servants told him that uh, your son will live. And it says there that he himself believed and all his household. And this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea into Galilee. Now, we don't have time, obviously, to go through the whole Gospel of John. You'll see on the, the uh, sidebar, on the left-hand side of your chart, all the verses in John's Gospel where it says, Believe in two. So there was this significant moment that when Jesus had preached the gospel, the good news to them, when he had proclaimed himself as Israel's Messiah, when he had performed a sign validating who he was, the idea then was to respond in belief. And many, it says, did. 
and they believe into the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's a significant thing. Being born from above or being born into Jesus can only take place then by an act of God. We believe, but he performs the action. He said in chapter 1, verse 12, you're born not of the will of man, but you're born of God. Not of flesh, not of blood, but you're born of God. There is no other way for entrance into God's kingdom. But, <clears throat> let me go on. If you look on the chart in the circle, and you'll see, I have down there three, three verses, John 6, 35 and 37, and also chapter 10, verse 28. And right below that, you'll see the expression, shall not hunger, and this is from the ESV, shall never thirst, and they will never perish. And these are all double negatives in the Greek text. All that means is, is um, you know, we would just say not, not, two times. Not, N-O-T, not, N-O-T. You, you know, as a way to say, no way. Never can this happen. And there is no other way to, to express a stronger way of saying this cannot be, it never will be, it cannot ever be, than to say, ooh, O-U, and may, M-E, the little accent. And what was Jesus trying to point out to the people he was manifesting himself to? That those who come to me, those who believe in me, he says, they'll never hunger, they'll never thirst. It's like he told the Samaritan woman, you'll get living water, you'll never thirst, and you'll never perish. King James, I think in 1028, says he'll never cast you out, never perish. To, be, to perish would have been to be cast out, to be removed from that kingdom. So once a person has been placed into Christ through believing, then there's no getting out. As a matter of fact, he said, no man can pluck you out of my hand. I and my father are one. It can't happen. It just will not be. And so the safety and security that one finds through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ is a very real thing. And it's a very comforting thing. And I'm, I'm thankful for it. And I think you are too. To know that it cannot be any other way. Now, of course, in the week following, when we look at this, this next movement here, we'll see that not everybody follows the Lord Jesus. Not everybody is a loyal disciple. Not everybody is devoted to being a Christ follower. That's why he 
admonished his disciples, even though it says here in John's gospel, they believed in him. And they believed in him because of the miracles that he did. And it only took one at Canaan and Galilee for them to believe. But he also told them, if you'll follow me, take up your cross and come after me. There's more than to just believing and finding safety and security in this sphere here of belonging to Christ than just knowing that, well, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, I belong to him. Following that comes taking up your cross. And he specifically says there, take up your cross. And I think we mentioned a week or two ago, everybody knew there was only one destination, one outcome for somebody that was going to the cross. When you lived in the Roman world and the Roman government sentenced you to execution on a cross, there was only one out outcome, death. Death on the cross, the shedding of your blood. And so when Jesus admonished his disciples, you take up your cross and follow me. The picture he was presenting to them was you die to yourself. You give up everything of yours and make me the center of your focus. Make me the one that you're determining to follow. Make me the Lord of your life. Not Caesar. Not the religious leaders of Israel. I am Lord. And so when the New Testament makes that expression, Lord Jesus Christ, it's there for a reason. It's because Jesus is Lord. And the question, of course, then for us is, is do we practice that? Well, that's where we're going to head next week. So we've just begun on this little journey. And it, it, it's going from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the book of Revelation and the last chapter. But we're going to hopefully do it in three messages. The first one is believing into Jesus. There is no other way to get started on this journey of reestablishing one's relationship with God than coming through his son and believing that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of God. And that by believing, he says, you will have life. Matter of fact, if, if you go back to John's gospel um, in chapter three, to those uh, famous verses that we all like to, to quote, Beginning in, in uh, verse, <clears throat> verse 15, he says um, that, uh, well, as Moses lifted up the serpent in verse 14 in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There you go. You've done bothered me for the last time. That <laughs> was the end of that. <laughs> um, he says this, uh, that whoever believes into him may have eternal life. Now you'll notice a couple of things there. It says may have. 
It doesn't say will have. You may have eternal life. Now, of course, the expression eternal life there, more literally, is life for the coming age. Now you say, well, what in the world does that mean? Well, there is a promised age by the Lord Jesus in which when he returns, he will come to establish his rule over the earth. And he will bring about righteousness and peace on the earth. What God intended from the very beginning back in, in, in the book of Genesis. And so this will all be restored. And so he says, whoever believes in him may have, may experience this life for this coming age. And then in verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes into him should not perish. There's that promise, should not perish, but have life for the coming age or age lasting life. So when Jesus met the woman at the well and he promised her living water, you know, she goes back into town, remember, and says, you know, do you think this could be the Messiah? Do you think she didn't understand what living water meant? She knew what Jesus was telling her. That living water was a direct connection to the Messianic era. And that I'll give it to you. <laughs> If you believe in me. And so in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world. To condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And when it says that not believe in it's the same expression, not believe into Jesus. All right, so having said that, I hope that you see the necessity of the new birth, that you see that there is only one way for participation in God's coming kingdom. When he returns to right this world and reclaim this entire world for himself, when he begins to judge the nations of the earth during what we call the Great Tribulation, or what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, when that occurs, God will destroy those nations, and he will destroy all their rulers and their kings and their potentates and their princes and whoever else. And every throne, every dominion, every principality, every ruler, all will be put down because you can only have one ruler in God's kingdom. And that will be the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the privilege he gives us then is this promise about having life in the coming age is that he wants us to share in it, to have a part in it. I have to stop. Lord, we thank you for bringing us to the place of the knowledge of the Son of God, for giving us the privilege of having your word before us so that we might know what the message is of the gospel. 
that we might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be found in Him, walking faithfully and loyally and devotedly, having borne our own cross, so that in that coming day, we might hear the Lord Jesus saying, well done. You've been a good and faithful servant. And now enter into the joy of your King. We pray, Father, that we would take these things to heart, that we would understand what it means then to surrender all to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.